Yo, toppers, if you're enjoying my nonfiction work here on the podcast, you might enjoy my fiction work as well. I have a novel and a children's book that you can get off Amazon and help support the podcast at the same time. I'll put a link in the show notes for you to check them out. Speaking of the show, let's get on with it. Please listen carefully. Hello to you toppers and welcome to episode 10. Wow, we made it to 10 episodes. Whether you're a first-time topper or you're coming back for more, I'm grateful to you for choosing to spend a bit of your day with me. Today I'm doing a few topics all with a similar theme, which is that all of the phrases have a name of sorts in them. Hence the title of today's episode, What's in a Name? First, we'll see why Joe is so into coffee, then we'll explore why Thomas was so doubtful. After that, we'll look into the building Elvis has left, and lastly, we'll wrap up with an on-point metaphor which uses the Italian version of the name Brutus. Yes, the metaphorical moment will be a two Brute. So let's get busy breaking down where these moniker-filled phrases come from, how we use them, and more. Our first idiom today is a personal favorite, because I love coffee. But why do people call a hot mug of deliciousness a cup of joe? This particular phrase is most common in America, and when we look at the possible origins here in a moment, the reason for this will be made pretty clear. Now, that's not to say that non-Americans don't fancy themselves a cup of joe, but it's definitely most popularly said here in the States. I found four theories for how the term originated, so let's explore all of them. First of all, Joe is often used to describe an average or ordinary person, i.e. the also well-known expression, an average Joe. Putting the word Joe in a description of a drink thereby indicates it's a drink to be enjoyed by an average person. This theory really came onto the scene during World War II because of soldiers, who also drank coffee, who were called G.I. Joes. Bonus origin here, G.I. originally stood for galvanized iron, which the military made a lot of things out of, especially around the World War I era, and they'd stamped the initials G.I. into these items. But it has become more well-known as government issue or general issue. The term G.I. Joe is often attributed to Dave Brager, who was himself drafted into the Army in 1941. In 1942, he began publishing a comic strip called G.I. Joe in a weekly military magazine called Yank. The term G.I. Joe as a general name for a soldier was made more popular when Dwight D. Eisenhower said in 1945, quote, The truly heroic figure of this war is G.I. Joe and his counterpart in the air, the Navy, and the merchant marine of every one of the United Nations, end quote. The final part of this theory comes from the popularity of diners showing up in the 1940s and 50s where lots of average men were eating and having coffee. More cups of joe for the average joes. The second origin theory also has to do with the military, but it is much more specific because it states that Cup of Joe is named after the secretary of the U.S. Navy Admiral Josephus Joe Daniels. In 1914, he abolished alcohol on Navy ships, and coffee became the beverage of choice for sailors. 
as it was at that point the strongest drink left available to them. Supposedly, the now sober and wide-awake sailors named their now mostly consumed drink after the man who put them in the situation where they had to make that choice. Good old Joe. The main problem with this theory is that alcohol already wasn't widely available on Navy ships before this ban was put into place, and some ships were already deemed completely dry ships and were alcohol-free before the ban. The other issue with this idea is that this ban took place about two decades before the term Cup of Joe started to become widely used sometime around the 1930s. The third theory also has to do with an actual Joe. This time, it's a man named Joe Martinson. And this one has a high probability of being a possible origin because this Joe actually owned a coffee company. Martinson's business of roasting coffee beans, which was founded in New York in 1898 in his mother's kitchen, filled the air with the aroma of, well, roasting coffee beans. What hurts this theory is that supposedly the strong smell was disliked by his neighbors, and the term was used by them negatively. Even later, when he moved to a factory, the smell was sent out into the New York air, and whether people loved it or hated it, many people agree that the odor and Joe's big personality both helped his business grow. And while we do get into the same issue here with this theory as we did with the last, that this is taking place a long time before the term became more popular and showed up in print, Martinson Coffee does have a trademark on the term Cup of Joe and they mark every package with another trademark of theirs. It's the real Joe. So even if this possible origin isn't totally true, anyone who is associated with Martinson Coffee will likely beg to differ. Before moving on, if you, like me, had never heard of Martinson Coffee before this, we've apparently been missing out. Andy Warhol liked to paint their cans, and they once appeared as a client on the show Mad Men. Now, the last possibility for where this idiom came from has to do with the word Java, which was an American slang word for coffee in the 19th century. This was because at that time in history, the Indonesian island of Java was the major source of coffee for the world. Joe is thought simply to be a derivation of Java. However, some linguists argue that Joe is actually a shortened version of Jamok, which was a common nickname for coffee in the 1930s. Jamoke was basically a combination of the words Java and Mocha. The people who hold to this idea say that the already abbreviated word of Jamoke being shortened to Joe is a common process for slang words, and the timing is in line with the idiom showing up in print. So while I can't definitively say this is the correct origin, it does seem to work on all fronts. Now, I know I've already mentioned this idiom showing up in print more often than I usually do up to this point, and now it's finally time to see what was first said about the Tasty Cup of Joe, and when. The first known usage of this idiom in print was in the early 20th century. In 1931, a lieutenant named Robert Erdman wrote the following in the Reserve Officer's Manual, United States Navy. Quote, Jamoke Java Joe Coffee, derived from the words Java and Mocha, where originally the best coffee came from. End quote. Even though he doesn't use the full idiom, a cup of joe, it definitely lends credence to the literary origin I just went over. Six years later, in 1937, Irish playwright Eugene O'Brien wrote a novel called He Swung and He Missed. In the book, he wrote the following passage, quote, I better go. I'll see you soon, cookie. 
Want a cup of joe? No thanks. Don't feel very good today, Cookie. End quote. So, no matter the exact origin, or if this is another idiom that comes from multiple origins, it's pretty well accepted that it was a popular one by the time the early to mid-1930s rolled around. Now, let's look into why Thomas is such a doubting fellow. The origin of this idiom is actually easy to nail down because there is an actual historical Thomas it's based on. And just to prove that no one is perfect, no matter who you hang out with, the original Doubting Thomas was none other than a disciple of Jesus himself. This idiom, and its earlier versions of Unbelieving Thomas and Wavering Thomas, comes from the fact that after Jesus had risen from the dead and Thomas heard about it from some of the other disciples, he said he wouldn't believe it until he saw it for himself, even though Jesus had told him he'd be coming back. We know this because it says in the book of John, chapter 20, verse 25, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. If we go on to read the next three verses, we see that about a week after old Tommy Boy states his inability to take his fellow disciples' word for it, we find out that he's able to let his doubt go. John 20, verses 26 through 29 says, A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So even though Thomas doubted in the beginning, he did believe as soon as he got the proof he'd asked for, and he didn't continue looking for more and more proof. Sometimes in life it's okay to doubt things a little until you have all the information. You shouldn't always take things at face value. Maybe being a doubting Thomas isn't always that bad. Okay, that kind of wraps up this idiom because its origin in print is also where it comes from. So let's move on to the king of funky hip dancing. So is there an actual building Elvis departed from to bring forth the idiom Elvis has left the building? The answer to that, dear toppers, is yes, and the name of the building is the Shreveport Municipal Memorial Auditorium in Shreveport, Louisiana. In 1956, Horace Logan, the founder-slash-announcer for the Louisiana Hayride Show, first uttered these five words, but that's not all he said. After Elvis performed a well-received rendition of Hound Dog, the fans in the audience were all headed outside in hopes of seeing him leave. Well, Horace didn't want them skedaddling just yet because there were more acts still to come for the night. So he got up on stage and said the following to the overly excited fans, quote, All right, all right, Elvis has left the building. I've told you absolutely straight up to this point. You know that he has left the building. He left the stage and went out the back with the policeman, and he is now gone from the building. End quote. So, contrary to its modern meaning of something being over or coming to an end, the first usage of this phrase was meant to keep people around because the show was in fact not over. It later became commonly used for just the opposite reason, to tell crowds that wouldn't leave after an Elvis concert that he had in fact left the building, so there was no reason to stick around in hopes of an encore. 
The phrasing became much more popular after Elvis's 1972 performance at Madison Square Garden. He recorded his album, Elvis, as recorded at Madison Square Garden there, which made it to number 11 on the Billboard charts and has sold over 3 million copies. At the end of that album, there is a track called End Theme, upon which you can hear the following. Quote, Elvis has left the building. Thank you and good night. End quote. This little audio clip allowed the phrase to reach the ears of many people who'd never heard it, so it really took off at that point, and became popular enough to become an idiom. Since this is such a new saying, there isn't a separate first-time-showing-up-in-print occurrence I can tell you about, so let's leave this building and move on to this week's metaphorical moment. It's just a metaphor, dude. It's a metaphor. Curious metaphor. A metaphor. That's just a metaphor. So I think we all know where this metaphor came from, right? It was said by Caesar. The Julius one, not the salad, and it is used today to express dismay at the treachery of someone you thought was a friend. It's often used, especially in modern times, as a joking thing too, and isn't always used to show real dismay. So even though we know who said it, you may not know that Julius uttered this phrase in 44 BC, as that's when his murder took place. Or did he? The Latin phrase, a tu brute, translates to, and you, Brutus? And actually comes from Shakespeare's play, aptly named, Julius Caesar, which was written around 1599. Now, Marcus Brutus was a man Caesar had seen as a close friend, probably up until the moment he plunged a knife into him a few times, so it's definitely based on true events, but there's no way to know if Caesar actually said anything like that when he died. The passage from the Bard's play basically plays out with Caesar asking why his buddy Brutus isn't kneeling, and Casca orders everyone to get all murdery and they get to stabbing. Then Caesar says, quote, A tu Brute, then fall, Caesar, end quote. He then dies, probably overdramatically. And with that, toppers, the metaphorical moment is complete, so that's going to be the end of episode 10. Thank you for joining me once again to turn some phrases. I hope you had fun listening and learned something along the way. Head on over to at Turn of Phrases on Twitter to connect to me and fellow language lovers. You can also send me topic suggestions through the website or via email, which is brisky at turnofphrases.com. My show notes has all my other social media contact information and sponsor information. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing or leaving a review. A five-star rating and a quick review are really the best way you can help me and the podcast out, and it won't take much time out of your day. Also, if you know someone who'd enjoy the show, please tell them about it to help spread the word. Thank you again for listening to Turn of Phrases podcast, researched, written, produced, and hosted by me, Brisky. Until next time, toppers, make a name for yourself. Hey Toppers, did you know that you can support the podcast simply by shopping on Amazon? Yeah, it's pretty cool. I have a link on my website on the support the podcast page that if you click on it, you can shop on Amazon buying stuff you are already going to buy, and it doesn't cost you a penny more than you are already going to pay. 
The extra cool thing is, is that I often have extra offers there, like perhaps a 30-day free trial to Amazon Music or a free trial subscription to HBO. It's often changing what I have available on there, so you should check the support the podcast page often. The offers from Amazon won't cost you anything, but they'll always give a little something to the podcast. So, it's a free way for you to support the podcast and help me keep episodes coming out to you every Monday. So, again, check out the Support the Podcast page on turnofphrases.com and see if there's anything there that looks good to you. Because what's better than supporting a cool podcast for free by getting stuff you are already going to get? <laughs>